we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John. And so if you want to turn there, we are going to be picking up the story in John chapter 12, verse 12, in a moment um, when we do so. So in the epic conclusion of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy, Aragon, the rightful king, the true and rightful king of, of Gondor, uh, returns home. If you guys know the story, for many generations, this kingdom had been ruled by stewards. These were not the king, but they were ruling on the king's behalf for the people. But the people were yearning and hoping for the, the kingdom to be restored, that the rightful king would take his place. And now the king is back at the end of the story. He comes back defeating the kingdom's enemies, saving the kingdom's people, and now he's coming to reign. It's what the people have been expecting and waiting for. And this is an epic conclusion, not just because Peter Jackson put it on the big screen. It's an epic conclusion, not just for those who really like the books, but it's an epic conclusion for all of us because it resonates in our hearts. For all of humanity, know somewhere deep down inside that we are longing and waiting for the rightful king to return and make everything we look around and we say, this is not how the world is supposed to be. There's someone in charge and he's going to come back and he's going to fix it. It's our hope. And in fact, you can say this is the whole storyline of humanity. It's the whole storyline of the Bible. For when you start looking at the Bible and you look at the whole storyline, you see that God created all that is as the good, rightful creator king of the cosmos. And then he set up Adam and Eve as his viceroys, his, his, his uh, representatives on this world to have dominion, to have rule, and to rule in his stead. But, and this is where it goes wrong, but the man who was designed, commanded, built to rule and have dominion, in fact, submits himself to the lies of the serpent. The one who is supposed to represent the king abdicates his authority. And in a weird twist, actually takes on the throne of God because he tries to be his own God. And from since, since from that point on, humanity has tried to rule and have dominion on this world apart from God's rule, and that never works out how we expect. It never works out how we want. So we see strife, we see social conflict, we see these things, the, the degradation of society. And so God chooses a man, and he says, from this man will come a lineage which will become a great nation. And from this nation, I'm going to pull up a king who has a heart after my own heart. And from that king to that king, I'm going to make a promise that he's going to have a descendant that is going to reign forever. This is a whole storyline of the Bible that we're expecting and hoping that king to appear. Because when we get to Jesus' time, as he was walking around talking to the Jewish people, this is what they were hoping for. The king will return. The king is going to set everything right. The king is going to save his people. He would reign forever. And so when we open up our Bibles and go to John chapter 12, 
we see a politically charged environment as people are longing for and expecting the king to come home. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 12. And if you don't, don't worry, for it will be on the screen. But starting in verse 12, this says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, and just as written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised, uh, and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the, man, the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to him, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When we look at the Gospels, the accounts in our Bible of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see how they're kind of recording the whole of Jesus' life and ministry. And it's interesting to see how they're broken up. And in fact, when you look at them, only two of them, we give a chapter or maybe two to Jesus' birth and his early life. That's Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't even mention that. John goes really far back, as we saw. But when we see it, the bulk of the time the gospel spend talking about Jesus is his three years of active ministry. And then when you break it down, even the bulk of that is spent on the last week of Jesus' life. That's what the time is given to examine who he is and what he's doing for us. And so when you look at the, the Gospel of John, now here in chapter 12, we have turned that corner from talking about his ministry before this final week to now he's entering this final week of his life, and we're going to spend the rest of the, 
Gospel of John talking about what he's done, what he's doing, and what he is speaking and teaching during this final week of his life, because this is really the center point of our faith, that Christ came to die for us, that Christ came to save us through his death. And when you look at this section, I summarize it in this way, and you really could say it's the summary of the whole rest of the gospel, and it's this, Jesus, the victorious king, brings salvation through his death to the glory of the Father. You can break this down and you see these points that I think are true, that Jesus is the victorious king. Even we who know what's about to happen, which doesn't seem that victorious, he's not a felled king. He's not a defeated king. Jesus is a victorious king. Why? Because he's come to do exactly what has been planned before the foundation of the world that he was going to do. And that was to save his people from all the nations. He's a victorious king. And how does he achieve this victory? He brings salvation through his death. He saves by dying, which we try to wrap our minds around. We think it's so weird, but Jesus brings salvation to us through his own death. And then this is all for the glory of the Father. When you look at God, as we know God revealed through the scripture, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's great because when you talk about the Father, he's always looking at the Son and saying, praise him. This is who you should look to. And the Son is always looking to the Father saying, look to him. He gets the glory. And the Spirit's always like, look at those guys. They are great. And you have this great dance within the Godhead where they're always magnifying each other saying, look upon your God and praise him. And so Jesus always is pointing back to the Father, saying, he gets the praise. Even when you praise my name, it's because you're praising him. He gets the praise. Jesus, the victorious king, brings salvation through his death to the glory of the Father. So let's see how this passage supports that. Well, first of all, we see at the beginning of this passage what's known as the triumphal entry. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. This is a prophesied king coming with political potential. That's what we see in this first section, that Jesus enters Jerusalem and there's a great crowd gathering and praising his name. Why are they praising his name? It says, because they've heard or they saw him raise Lazarus from the ground. And so they were praising his name and the flocking and the crowd was coming out because they heard that story. And so they were looking to Jesus as this is it. This is the returning king. And so they grab palm branches and they start waving palm branches and they lay him on the ground as we see in other accounts as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And palm branches have some significance to the feast, but not for Passover. Really, by Jesus' time, the palm branch has become a nationalistic symbol for Israel, for Jerusalem. In essence, if we go and put this amount of time, this guy was coming into town, and they were, if it was us, they were waving American flags, and they had the band strike up the national anthem, and they were saying, praise this guy who's going to come and save our nation." that these people were thinking, this is the son of David that was promised. He's coming to restore his kingdom. Praise be his name. And they knew that this, and they were thinking this was the prophesied king, and you can see that on how they greet him. They quote scripture. 
They go back to the Psalms and open up Psalms 118, verses 25 and 26, and they say, Hosanna, which literally means God brings salvation. And they, and they look at Jesus and they proclaim, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They saw this as a prophesied king that he had returned. It was what they were hoping for, is what they were expecting. This whole crowd was here. They were about to take up arms. They were saying, let's get this. We can overthrow the Roman Empire. This is David come again. Praise be to his name. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, they knew this. They felt this. And they looked upon him and they said, the whole world is going after him. A little bit of exaggeration, but everyone was flocking to Jesus and they felt this political potential that Jesus could, if he wished, could take the throne because the people were behind him. They saw who he was. And Jesus, to drive home the point that he truly is the prophesied king, grabs a donkey and rides it into Jerusalem where all disciples, are, don't, they don't really see the point. But I love, this, I love how honest John, the gospel writer, is. He says, we didn't understand what was going on when it was going on, but after reflecting on it, after seeing the truth of it, we see, oh, he's fulfilling scripture. He's fulfilling prophecy that Jesus is a prophesied king. He, that's Zechariah 9.9 right there in the flesh that the king returns on a young donkey. And so they praised him after, and, they, and John records this saying, it is clear without a doubt that Jesus is the prophesied king and he's coming into this really political potential, this, this, this turmoil that's going on that the people had been expecting this Messiah. And so it's making clear that Jesus is the long-awaited king, the son of David, who would reign forever and is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy and all of the Old Testament promises. Here he is in the flesh. And so they were a little excited about it. Very excited about it. And this goes on and we see almost like a non-sequitur about how there were some Greeks in the town and they come up to his followers and say, hey, we want to see Jesus. Seems almost out of place. And I love it because it's almost like John, the gospel writer, was saying, This is very nationalistic. This is very, is make, Jesus is going to make Israel great again. Kind of this, this, this atmosphere that's really us doing it. And he's going to work for us. And so he's kind of reminding people as they read his gospel there were some Greeks, people not included in this promise, some Greeks who were God-fearers, people who had probably seen the truth of who God was and they wanted to know who Jesus was. And so they approached Philip and Andrew. We don't know why they approached Philip or Andrew. It says it's Philip from Bethsaida, which is a town close to some very big Greek cities. So maybe they thought he was approachable. Philip and Andrew both are Greek names. They're not Hebrew names. And so maybe they say, hey, they're more like us than not. And so they approach them, and they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, these people want to see you. And as to this, Jesus responds, my hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's a shift within the Gospel of John. Building up to chapter 12 again and again, when people are coming to him to make him king, when people are coming to praise him, he keeps on saying, the hour has not yet come. 
The time has not yet come. And now we see the shift when he recognizes the hour has come. Now is entering the time where I must die. Jesus knew that the hour had come, that the time had come for his crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation, that the, the, the pinnacle of our faith was going to happen now, that the reason he had come to this world was coming to fulfillment right now. And I love that it's connected with Greeks coming to speak to him because it's showing that Jesus' promise is not just for the Israel nation, that Jesus' promise is to all people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And that people are going to be grafted into his people if they believe in him. Because his hour has come. And he uses this interesting illustration, this image of a wheat grain falling to the ground. And in a sense dying to give birth to another plant which produces much fruit. He's using the image to point to what is about to happen. One man, Jesus, dying, giving his life so that the fruit of which will be multiple, multiple lives as people believe in him, come to accept him for who he is, and so are given new life. And this attitude that we're supposed to bow down and follow Jesus is not just for him, but he said, goes on about how if you follow me, that's what you do. You, you're going to be like me and that you, we should be others first. We're not just looking out for our own uh, um, interests, but we're also looking out for other people as well. But the main point that we see here is that ultimately Jesus will save us, does save us through his act, through his giving up of his life. Through all, he talks about and says, and, when I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John says this, he said this, speaking about what kind of death he was about to endure. Just look at that language. And I, when I am lifted up, when I am nailed to the cross, and I am lifted up and displayed for all of Jerusalem and everyone around to see, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That every kind of person is going to be drawn to me when they see me as their Savior, their Lord, their crucified Redeemer, the one who has given his life so that they may live. That this is how Jesus saves us. He brings deliverance through death. He brings salvation through his death. He saves by dying. He brings us into his family by giving us his place and taking our place upon the cross. For Jesus lived a life without sin. He did not deserve to die as he died, but yet he willingly did so. Because he willingly stood condemned in our place so that we can now stand in his place before the Father and have life in him. And I love the fact that in verse 27, he makes it clear that this is not plan B. This wasn't because something had gone awry. This wasn't something that happened because, you know, Judas is going to betray him. No, he says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
This was God's plan from the beginning, to save his people through the death of Jesus Christ to save people who would look upon their crucified Lord and believe and trust in him. To save people who believe and trust in the future that this, this, this crucified Lord does not stay dead, but actually rises from the grave. And that he doesn't just stay in the physical form, but he ascends to our God the Father and intercedes on our behalf that this is what draws all people to Christ as they believe in him. And it's not plan B. God was not taken by surprise when that crowd flips and turns on Jesus. He knew it was going to happen. He planned for it to happen. As we see Jesus telling us. And Jesus, when he is lifted up and when he saves his people, he doesn't just save his people, but he destroys the work of the enemy. I love how he talks about when I'm lifted up, you know, when I'm glorified, the, the, the king of this world, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. He's talking about the enemy, the great enemy, the serpent at the beginning, the dragon in Revelation, the enemy of Christ, the devil. This guy is going to be cast out. He will no longer have dominion. I'll defeat him. And Jesus right there is pointing back again to Genesis 3.15 when the promise of the seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and when he does so his his heel will be bruised and so we see in jesus when he dies and gives up his life for us he is destroying the works of the devil the works that have been reigning in this world for so long he casts them out and when we see the manner of death and what he accomplishes and how he brings us into a fellowship of God and how he destroys and casts out the, the, the devil, we cannot but praise him. That we look to Jesus in this account and we have to trust him. That we're called to look upon him. That we want to be numbered with those who look upon the Son of Man when he's lifted up and are saved. I urge everyone, if you do not know Jesus in this way, to look upon him, to see him for who he is, to truly praise and trust him as the promised one who came to save us. But the Jewish people at this time could not look past what they thought would happen. Jesus is talking about his death. He's talking about being lifted up. And they go, uh, excuse me. Uh, the promise is that the son of David will reign forever. That's the promise. That's what they say. How could this son of man, who are you claiming is you, who are you claiming is the son of David, how could he die then? This doesn't make sense. They couldn't look past their expectations because, again, their expectation was that the son of uh, David would be like a return of David, uh, David that uh, he would you know, set the kingdom back into a physical thing, that Israel would reign the region again, that all the other nations around them would bow down to them again, that they would bring, make it great again. And yet Jesus does this shift in his ministry where he says, yes, a kingdom is coming, but it has come right now, and it's of a spiritual nation, a na nature that transcends national borders. It transcends bloodlines. It transcends what you think. And it goes across the globe as people see me for who I am and come into my people and are saved because of it. And so you're expecting the physical kingdom? Not yet. 
Right now, as I inaugurate my kingdom, is when people believe in me, they enter in the kingdom of God as it reigns now through belief in me. But one day, he doesn't say this here, but we know from the Bible, but one day, he will return. And one day, he will set up his kingdom. And one day is a physical reign, however you want to picture it, however you, however you are driven to understand that, he reigns forever as the king of the new heavens in the new earth. And so we wait for that because that's when everything will be made right. That's when Revelation says he's wiping every tear that we possibly could have. He's righting every wrong. He is, he's making things as they should be. And we wait for that, but right now we trust and follow as he's reigning spiritually in our lives through his church, through his people, and that has implications for us. Some good, some bad. I would say, and how we think of things. I don't think of bad. I'll take it back. Important implications for the church and his kingdom. If God reigns, if Jesus reigns right now through a spiritual kingdom, I might hurt some people's feelings right here. Our hope is not a vote goes our way. Our hope is not our nation follows a certain rules. Those are all good things, and I pray that they happen. That's not our hope. Our hope is that the gospel spreads across our land, that everyone could come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and bow to him, and because of that, our nation will change. Our hope is not to get our party in charge, whatever party you support, and think that's going to bring salvation to our land. Our hope is first and foremost in the kingdom of God, spreading across all boundaries, pushing back darkness, so that Christ is made much of in every home and in every life, in every corner of the public square. That's our hope. Yes, we go and we, if you vote your conscience and you vote your faith, yes, there are good causes to take, take up and to campaign for, but our hope is first and foremost and that people come to know Christ. And that means our mission is first and foremost that people, that we share Christ with people so that they're changed, they see him, and they follow him. Jesus the victorious king, bringing salvation through his death to the glory of the Father. Jesus lives out a principle that of, of soli dia gloria, which is this Latin to glory, glory to God alone. So you can say soli dia gloria if you want to sound fancy. I like to sound fancy sometimes. And so I say that. It's one of the guiding principles of the Reformation when us Protestants kind of broke off from the Roman church and said, everything we do, everything we see is to the glory of God alone. And Jesus lived out this. It was, his life was an, was an articulation of this principle pointing to the glory of the Father. And so before these people, Jesus prays. He says, Father, glorify your name. He's putting words to how he's lived his life. For when you look at how Jesus has lived life, we see again and again passages where Jesus says, like in John 4, 34, my food is, due to, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus says, I live, I breathe. My will is to follow God's will, to please him. Further on in John 8, uh, 29, he says, and 
he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I am always do the uh, things that are pleasing to him. Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to God. So when he says, Father, glorify his name, he is just putting words to how he has lived his whole life. That he has done everything that is pleasing to the Father. That he has followed God with all of his life. That he is the only human that can claim perfect obedience to God. Every single moment, every single thought, every single action was obedient to his Father. What we could never do, Jesus did. What we could never do, because we stumble and fall, and no matter how much we try and how much we strive, we cannot live in perfect obedience. But Jesus came and he did it for us. Not just demonstrating that it could be done, because it can't be done, but but showing that he has accomplished it. Why? So that now he can share that righteousness that standing has before God with with those who believe in him. So Jesus says this prayer, and I love it because the Father verbally responds. We only see this three times in the Gospels. Once when Jesus is baptized, once during the transfiguration, and now here when he prays, Father, glorify your name. How does the Father respond? He says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I love this because he's, point, he's talking to Jesus and says, your life, your active obedience to me, I have glorified my name through you. That through your life, through your ministry, through everything you've done is glorifying to me. I have glorified it. And now how you're about to die, how you're about to be lifted up, I will glorify my name again. Which gives us a great way in which we understand the crucifixion, that we, why we can mourn at the result, uh, the reason for it, and we can see the horribleness of it. We must always remember that God says this is for His glory, because it brings you and me into His family as His followers. And we need both of these things that. Jesus was active in obedience and Jesus was passive in going to the cross to save us because that is how we are saved. That through his activeness, he gives us his standing before God. And and because of the cross, he takes our place that we deserve. The great exchange happens right there that God is glorified in how Jesus lived and God is glorified in how Jesus died so that we could stand before our God follow him, know him, love him, and be loved just as Jesus. And what a great promise this is for us. That Jesus, the victorious king, brings salvation through his death to the glory of the Father. When he asks that, when we see this, We have to say, so what? And hopefully when we say, so what? We say, yeah, we see how it brings us to a state of praise and and trust as we follow God and we see Jesus for who he is. But so what? How do we respond? How do we, we look to him? And I love how Jesus looks upon the people who are seeing and hearing his teaching and he tells them how to respond. 
He says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. He's looking about on people and says, I'm about to die. So why you have a chance, why you can still see me, why you can still talk to me, why I can still teach you, come to follow me. For when you follow me, you'll be in the light and the darkness is driven out. Follow me, and you'll come to God. Follow me, for when you can become sons of the light. A great promise that if you look upon me, if you trust me, if you follow me, you too can be included in the light in God's kingdom. He tells them and urges them that there's a lonely, a little while left, so follow me now before it's too late. But that's not too different than how I look at this for us now, today. Why you have chance? Why there's still breath in your lungs? For we're not guaranteed tomorrow. For we're not guaranteed a moment outside of these doors or even here. Follow Jesus why you may. Follow Jesus while you can. When as you see him through the word and you see that he is the light, follow him. Because we are urged to follow him and see him for who he is, because he is right before our eyes. While they saw him in the flesh, every time we pick up the word of God, we can see him and everything he accomplished for us. We can see how he has saved us. We can see how the whole history of the world is coming to this point that Jesus saves his people. And so why you see him, follow him, that we can follow and trust as we read and believe who Jesus is. That we don't wait as we have opportunity, follow him right now. And when we do, we can become, we do become sons of the light, sons of light. No longer defined by darkness, sin, shame, deceit. No. But now defined and known by the light, purity, life, goodness. When we follow Jesus, we have a fundamental identity change. That we're pulled from the dominion of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and come now into the kingdom of God's light, and we're forever changed because God remakes us, a new creation within us when we come to know Christ. And now we follow him and defined as one of his. I love how the author of Hebrews says it like this. I but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's a call and urging for all of us. Look upon Christ, know Christ, trust Christ, and then you follow Christ all of your life. Jesus, the victorious King, bring salvation through his death to the glory of the Father. Let us pray. Dear Father, praise be to your name. Lord, we praise you 
For that is why we gather together on a Sunday morning is to give glory to you, to praise your name, to magnify your glory, to point to you and what you have done and what you continue to do in our lives and how you have saved us through your Son and how you lavish blessings upon us that we don't deserve. So praise be to your name, Lord. And I pray for everyone here as we leave here, as we process through what we've heard, as we read again the scripture and check to see if what we heard is right, that we come to an understanding of who you are, of how you have saved us, of how we are called now to follow you with all of our life. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.